Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. Keep your Bibles open there. We're going to be dwelling in this chapter the whole time. There we go. So here's my short outline of, um, of this chapter. It breaks basically the way it reads in your Bible, and the editor of your whatever Bible you have has probably broken it out. Stumbling blocks, church discipline, and forgiveness. But I want to look a little bit at some context first. Um, and by the way, pardon me while I'm getting myself ready up here. Um, I, I want to suggest to you that what Bob started teaching last week, back in Matthew 17, verse 24, all the way to the end of this chapter, could well have happened all in one day. I'm not saying it did, but it reads to me like it did. And I think all of chapter 18 might have been taught almost in the time that you heard Chuck read it. Uh, If you look at Matthew 17, verse 24, it says, when they had come to Capernaum, and then leads in from that. And that's the part Bob was teaching on that last week. After the, the interaction between Peter and Jesus, where Jesus ultimately says, lest we give them offense, go down, cast the line into the sea, and catch the fish, and he gets the coin to go pay the temple tax for both Peter and for, and for, for Jesus. Um, Matthew 18, verse 1 says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, And this could easily be that they, by the way, in chapter 17, the transfiguration had happened, and they had been out of Galilee up in the, up in the north, uh, north above the Sea of Galilee. And if you've been here the last few weeks, Bob had a couple of good maps that showed that. And they've come back into Galilee. And so it's after they get to Capernaum where the temple tax conversation happens. And then the disciples gather with Christ, whatever house they're in at that time. And uh, and then the rest of what Chuck read takes place. In verse 21, Peter asks a question, which would be natural in the context of what Jesus has just said. And then when you look at 19 verse 1... Matthew gives us a transition phrase, and it came about when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee, and it goes on from there. And so, he didn't necessarily depart that same day, but there was nothing else significant that the Holy Spirit laid on Matthew's mind anyway to pass on to us after that point until Jesus had departed and went on, uh, it says, to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So, there is a very good chance that all of this teaching from where Bob started last week through to the end of this chapter takes place all in one day. And that's not essential to understanding this passage, but I think it's important to consider because I think each of these three things all connect together in a way that it would have been very logical for Jesus just to teach through them one by one. Bob, in his uh, outline of Matthew as he had titled the various sections, called this Dealing with Offenses. And I think you're going to see as we go through here that this is all about dealing with different types of offenses. Okay? So that's one background thing. The other thing I want to suggest to you, when I read this passage, 
I really think that verse 1 through 14 all go together. And, and the reason is because it's, it's all about the high value of a child to God, which Bob really strongly taught on last week. He was focused on verses 2 through 5. So Peter in verse 1, uh, is it Peter? The disciples come and they say, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus uses a child as the example. Two of the key principles that come out of that together in verse 3 are that you must turn. The word used in English is converted, but it means to turn, to repent. And then to become like a child. And Bob talked last week about both of those and how that represented the old man and the new man. When someone comes to Christ, we become a new creation. Um, But Jesus is using a child as an example. And then he talks about the humility of a child. He talks about receiving a child in Jesus' name. And then we have a series of verses scattered through here. The part that I'm calling the uh, title in the stumbling block on the other other, uh, slide. Verse 6 says... um, Verse 6 says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Then we have a teaching that comes in there that you're familiar with. and I'll get to it in a minute. But then when he gets to verse um, 10, at the end of that, that portion, he says, Take heed that you do not spise one of these little ones. Remember, I'm still talking about children. This is what Jesus is saying there. Then he starts, he gives the parable of the, the, the man who's lost one sheep out of a hundred. And what does he do? And he goes and finds it. And at the end of that, Jesus in verse 14 says, Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Still talking about children. So there are verses actually through, through all of this chapter, there are several verses that we tend to take that one verse And we run with as a general principle. And I'm not finding fault with that. As I've studied this some myself and thought about this and have looked at it, I do think there are other verses in Scripture. There is credence for most of the ones that you recognize here that you might memorize and just use that one verse. You might not even know what the context is, and you use that one verse. I think for the most part... These verses that stand out that we often use apart from the context are valid as general teaching because of other times where they're used or other things taught to us in Scripture. However, as we're studying through the Bible, I just want to point out that I think all of this that I'm going to call stumbling stumbling blocks and the word offense was used a lot as Chuck was reading it. All of this that's in 1 through 14 is really about how God views children and how important they are to Him. Now, we can generalize that to how important God views everyone. Verse 14, even so it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Do we know another verse that's more general about everyone? Something similar? 1 Timothy 2, 3 comes to mind. It's not the will of the Father that anyone should should perish, but that all should be saved, right? But the context is about children. So, having said that, this is how I break it up, um, and I'm just going to move on from stumbling blocks uh, before I get to that. In the treatment of a child, 
Bob talked last week about receive a child in Jesus' name. The verse says it's the same as receiving Jesus. Bob gave a very good illustration, I thought, about what it means to receive some, someone in Jesus' name. And he used the illustration of receiving someone into his home. If you weren't here last week, you women, this would be a great test. If the women that were at the ladies' retreat, go home and ask your husbands. What did Bob say about receiving someone? Um, and if they don't know, just ask Bob or, or me. But, but it, was, it was very good. And it's a positive consequence of how you treat a child. If you receive a child in Jesus' name, it's equivalent to receiving Jesus. And by the way, this receive, this is not the meaning of receive Christ as in salvation. This is more receiving someone as your honored guest, as someone that you're going to treat well. Okay. So uh, if Jesus walked in the room right now and you knew it was Christ, you would treat him with with a large amount of respect, right? And I'm understating that. Well, if we receive a child in the same kind of way... Actually, the passage that comes to mind here is in Matthew 25, when, he's doing, when Jesus gives us the parable of the sheep and goats, when he talks about all the people who had done things, good things to people in dire straits. And they say, well, Master, when did we ever do this? And he said, whenever you did this to one of the least of these, you've done it to me. That's the principle that we have here in verse 5. So in verse 6, however, we get a consequence. And this is where we dive into the new part for this week. Um, Jesus says that, uh, I read it a minute ago, but if you cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, the dire consequence, he does, it's implied, but he says basically that drowning would be better than what the real consequence will be. And what's obviously being implied here is eternal judgment. Verse 8 and 9 are going to talk about the fiery hell, the fiery judgment. Um, Christ is taking it very seriously how we treat children in regard to their view of Christ. If you you look closely at verse 6, it says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. Now, I want to digress slightly on this believe in me because salvation, there are things about salvation. Even though we're taught a lot of good things in Scripture, there are th- there's still a mystery aspect to it. And, and I think the reality as Jesus talks through the stumbling blocks here, he's not making an academic argument. Uh, verse 7, he says, Woe to the world because of offenses. That's stumbling blocks, and I'll get to that in a minute. But offenses must come. Woe to that man by whom they come. He's not making an academic argument. There are real things in this world that make people trip and fall in regard to their view of Christ. That context is important in verse 6. These little ones who believe in me. So, I don't think that once you're saved, you can lose your salvation. So as I go through this message, please do not take anything I say to mean that, okay? I don't mean that. The reality is that there are lots of people who appear to us at some point in life to believe in Christ, but they later fall away and deny Christ and even go to their grave sometimes as enemies of Christ, sometimes apathetic about Christ, and, and so there's a difference between believing in your head and believing in your heart. 
There's a difference in a belief that's academic and a belief that saves. Our children, this is about children, our children, when they grow up in a Christian home and they hear about Christ and they're taught well, they hear the gospel at a young age, some, I think, believe with head and mind both and are saved at whatever age they proclaim Christ, proclaim faith in Him. But there also are some who seem to do all of that. You may wonder, do they really get it? You don't know. And you have to let them grow up to see, is it, is it, is it real? It's really as they grow up that you see whether it was really genuine back at 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. You know, or even in the teen years, as they grow up into adults, do they hold tight to it? And we're taught that, aren't we, in Matthew um, 13, about the parable of the sower, how people respond to the seed. You've got to see them grow up. What's the fruit would be the one there. If we go later in Matthew 13, the parable of the tares and wheat, you've got to see them grow up. And again, it comes to fruit. They look the same until the, the grains of the wheat come out. So... I'm giving you that as context because there's actually several verses scattered through chapter 8 that I think touch on this. Jesus is recognizing that there are people who believe in him and are right now following him. But what's going to happen in the future will determine whether they're really saved or not. And I'll give you one other example of that. Uh, Let me find it real quick on my phone here, in uh, John, John, this is not about children, this is actually about adults, in John 8, verse uh, 31, um, 31 and 32, Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. This is a puzzling passage, because he says this to the Jews who believed him, And then right away, they start arguing with him about, we've never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean about making us free? And it gets worse and worse all the way through that chapter. And a lot of them turn and leave. So they are Jews inspired by Scripture here. Jesus is looking at them, Jews who believe, I mean inspired by the Holy Spirit, Jews who believe in Jesus, but they turn away before we get to the end of the chapter and leave. And they're being, uh, it's, it's really a hard, one of the hardest tense conversations that goes on between Jesus and some of the Jews happens after that verse. We quote that verse as a mark of a disciple of Christ. You're going to abide in his word. Know the truth and it shall set you free. Great verse. It wasn't great when it came live from his mouth right then. It caused a big argument. So... My point in all of that is that in Scripture, we see cases of people who believe in Christ and then they fall away. And we know doctrinally from other things taught in Scripture, it wasn't a real belief that saved. Once you are saved and in the Father's hand, you can't be snatched out. Because the salvation doesn't come because of something you do. It comes because of what Christ has done. But anyway, I give you all of that as a caveat. Going back to verse 6, um, there's a big consequence if you cause a child to stumble from his belief in Christ. Okay? So, going forward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. So, I want to talk about this word that you have in your Bibles, to sin. Uh, this is not 
the normal word for sin in the New Testament. The normal word words are these up here, and they appear in a bunch of different places. Most of the places where you see sin, sin, sins, plural, it's these three words. There's another one that I found after I did this slide that starts with a P that's also used that way. Um, these are the normal words for sin. And by the way, you'll recognize some of these verses, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In the chapter we're doing right now, when we get to 15, if your brother sins against you, it's one of these words. Uh, verse 21, when Peter says, how often shall my brother sin against me? Same, it's one of these words. And so you recognize some of these. John 1.29, this is where John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the interesting thing to me is our translation that says little ones who believe in me to sin because this word is a different word. And the word in English, it's the meaning causes to sin. So what you see in red coming across in English is from this Greek word skandaliso. That's the verb. It means to put a stumbling block in front of someone an impediment that will cause them to trip or fall. Now, that's the main meaning. Uh, underneath that umbrella, a possibility is to entice to sin. And that's, why it's, that's where it's being rendered that way here. But the main meaning is richer, which is why I'm bringing it to your attention. Uh, to cause a person to distrust and, dis- and, uh, and desert one whom he ought to trust and obey. I, I like this one down here, to see in another what I disapprove of, and what hinders me from acknowledging his authority. These are different ways you might stumble from what the course you had been on. But a key thing to, talk, to, to notice is that there is implied in this an enemy, someone who wants you to fall. So when Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... I don't think it's just like, so we have grandparents here. Pardon me, grandparents. I see several of you. But if mom tells the young child, the daughter, say four or five years old, don't take any of those cookies there for after supper. And then mom leaves the room. And then grandpa says, go get a cookie and bring me one. And if the daughter does it, what has, what, what's, what has happened? The daughter has sinned at least one way disobeying mom, and I'd say two ways, theft. Stolen a cookie, it wasn't right, rightfully hers or grandpa's yet. So grandpa has caused her to sin. And that's legitimate to take that meaning here. Someone can cause you to sin or something in the world can cause you to sin. But in that sense, we're thinking of it in terms that we as Christians after salvation relate to. Because we do sin occasionally. And we claim 1 John 1, 9. We confess it and, you know, our faithful God cleanses us from that sin. But I think the meaning is deeper than that because of this idea of an enemy. This is more like trying to wipe away the faith of the kid altogether. It's much more severe. Now, there's a noun form, scandalon. And it, it's a movable stick or trigger of a trap. i got a picture coming up in a minute. But it's, it's the actual impediment that's put in someone's way to make them fall or to trap them. Um, 
So if, if you Google box trap video, you can find this. And so we've got a nice little expensive box trap. You can see they put a lot of effort into it. Um, this is the bait, and they've looked like they put seeds down here too, but they're actually trying to catch a squirrel. If you go look at the video, they catch a squirrel at the end of this. But here's the bait stick, and here's the stick that if it falls is going to make the box come down. What do you suppose is the scandal on here? Who thinks they know? We got... We got a uh, laundry basket. We got one stick here and one stick here. That's the three components of this box trap. Which, which one of those three is the scandal on? This one right here? You are right. That's the scandal on. That's the trigger. That's what causes the trap to catch the prey. So this word uh, is used... The verb form, the noun form is only used in verse 7, but the, uh, and it's used each place where you see offenses in verse 7 is the noun form here. Um, but the verb form is scattered all through here, and it's actually in, in chapter 17 where Bob was teaching last week. Jesus says, lest we give them offense. That's what your Bible probably says. Lest we give them offense. It literally is lest we cause them to stumble. And so if you think about that, these are the guys taking up the poll tax. How would they be caused to stumble if Jesus said, I'm the master, I'm the Lord of the temple, I don't need to pay a poll tax. No, we're not going to pay the poll tax. What do you think? How would they stumble? Well, I can think of two ways. Number one is they could wrongly accuse him under their law that he's not paying the poll tax. It would be wrong because he indeed is the master, but they're now going to be bringing charges against him. Another way is they might go, well, if he doesn't need to pay the tax, I don't need to pay the tax. And then they get in trouble and get thrown in jail, you know, or whatever the penalty was for not paying the poll tax. Um, so it's used up there. It's used in these verses. And if, if, we look, if we look through this, it would really go like this, starting in verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble... Verse 7, woe to the world because of stumbling blocks, for stumbling blocks must come, but woe to that man by whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and cast it from you, and etc. through that. So, so if you look at this verse, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, you can, if you've thought through it, take that English and cover everything I'm saying. But you're more likely to think of my example of the little child stealing the cookie. And let's say mom catches her. Maybe grandpa feels guilty. They confess. I don't know. But she admits it and says, I'm sorry, mom. I won't do it again. And the relationship's healed. That's what we tend to think. But then if I change the word to be this, it causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble I've already biased you because of what I've already said. But what you see here, what does this tend to mean is something more serious. A falling on the face, a getting hurt, a possibly never coming back to the Lord because we know the rest of the verses that are coming, right? Okay. So, I wanted to step away from this passage for a minute and... 
and lists some modern stumbling blocks that we run into because Jesus is taking this seriously. I'm not really going to dwell on verse 8 and 9, but you can see in 8 and 9 when he talks about the consequences. He flipped it in 8 and 9. Getting a little ahead of myself now. But in 8 and 9, he's not talking about the one who causes someone to stumble. He switched to if some physical body part causes you to stumble. It's so serious. You don't want to stumble from your faith and end up in the fiery judgment or the fiery hell. And so um, he's taking this seriously. I think we should take it seriously. Uh, These are four that come to mind that are obvious in our culture. The theory of evolution taught as fact. Um, The Barna Group did a study and released results, I think, in 2011, that in the 2000s, that decade leading up to that, they studied uh, uh, teenagers raised in churches. And what they found is that 59% in their college to in their 20 years, they didn't all go to college, but in their late teen to 20s, stopped going to church and fell away from their faith. And when they drilled down and what were the reasons, the, the biggest reason was the, 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 what they saw as a conflict between what science says about where we came from and what the Bible says. And so this... This is a direct attack on the first few pages of Genesis. And if, you're, if doubt is successfully sowed and cements there, then it extends to start chipping away at the rest of Scripture. So, parents, you need to take this seriously in preparing your children and trying to fight against this. Um, there, even if you homeschool, it's not just a matter of protecting them from it. Because they're eventually going to grow up. They're not always going to be in your home. If they go to college, they're going to be challenged with this. If they don't go to college and just go in the working world, they're going to be working with people who think this is true all the way from top to bottom. And, um, and so you've got to prepare your children. You really need to. And, and uh, there are good resources for helping children understand what the Bible's saying, what the actual repeatable science is, what the facts are that are available, and how worldview tends to lead people one way or another when they all look at the same facts. There's lots of good stuff out there. Answers in Genesis um, puts out a a video series called uh, Demolishing Strongholds. We used it in our church when our son was late middle school, early high school. I forget exactly when it was. It's like five or six one-hour videos. That's a great resource. It's not the only one. There's lots of things out there. But let me also say, this is not something that you you can successfully answer the questions and prepare your child for the future apart from you just in like a one video series. It's something that you need to start and it needs to be interwoven in with how they're growing up where you're giving them truth and sound reasoning and addressing what you know they're going to be hearing. And so I recommend Answers in Genesis. they got a lot of good stuff. Uh, if, 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 if you're finding that you are currently wrestling with this, everything I'm going to list here, don't leave and wrestle with stuff and not seek help. You know, Bob can help you. I can help you. Other people in this church can get you resources and help you. So don't... Don't let the attacks that come against you as stumbling blocks be things you're just naive about. But 
arm yourself. Find out how to avoid those stumbling blocks, how to jump over them. So this is one. Liberal attacks on the Bible. Um, your children, for the most part, probably won't run into this. This more happens at like the college level or above, but it, it could happen. Um, I, after I graduated from college, I was helping with a navigator ministry in Northern Virginia at the George Mason University campus. And there were two navigator friends of mine who, who um, met a freshman in the first week of school and she had a great conversation with him, shared Christ with him. He prayed to receive Christ. He then met with them near the end of that week and again the next week in uh, initial Bible studies with them. They were following up, trying to you know, help him grow. And he was all excited, started reading in his Bible. And he, unbeknownst to them, signed up for an extra class that wasn't part of what he was signing up, what he had signed up as his, uh, as his first semester set of courses. He added a religion course because he was so excited about what, he, what they had told him and what he had found out. And uh, um, in the religion course, in the, near the end of the second week of the school year, the professor in that class was was talking about the book of 1 John and said it wasn't written by John the um, Apostle, written by somebody else under his name. And that blew the, the wheels off his cart, and he told my two friends, I, I, I don't want to do any more Bible study with you. This stuff's not real. And he ab- abandoned uh, what looked like faith. I think of the second type of soil in Matthew 13, the parable of the soils, Comes up eager, but when the sun hits it, scorches, withers. There were no deep roots. Um, so this is this is a real challenge. Secular religion courses are not trying to help you believe the Bible. Okay, so but there are answers to that. There are easy answers to what that professor said to him. There are things you can go find out about. What do people think about the book of 1 John? And there are credible answers that balance, offset, and undercut and defeat what the liberal critics say. But you've got to want to go look. You've got to go find it. Okay? So it's there. Natasha and Carrie, you guys are in the middle of this on both these counts at a secular school. So if you have any doubts, questions that you're not, you know, that, that are challenging you in your faith... Ask Bob, ask me, ask somebody. Don't let it be something that... Okay, so i got to just tell you this. We, we paved our driveway the last few weeks. We had put in a landscaping system first. So after they paved, we found out that there's a sprinkler head popping up right under the edge of the asphalt. Poor planning. My fault. I take the responsibility. I'm the homeowner. Should have done it in the other order, probably. Pay first, then put in the sprinkling system. So the sprinkler comes up, and it starts eroding the asphalt. And the asphalt starts caving in there. That's what these are two, first two are like if you ignore them. You let the sprinkler come up, and, whoop, 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 and the, the foundation's getting eroded. You've got to address it. Move that sprinkler head. That means you've got to find the answers here. Don't let your foundation degrade, okay? Modern cults, uh, they deceive in regard to who Jesus is and salvation by grace through faith. And it's really ironic. Their attacks, their deception on who Jesus is is taking away from who he is. He's not fully God. He's a God, little g. 
It's demoting, taking things away. Their deception on salvation is adding to. Just the opposite. Instead of by grace through faith and what Christ has done from you, it is finished. They're adding things to it. Um, culture's message, do whatever feels good. Uh, th- this is things like um, people get into sexual immorality, alcohol, drugs, the things that can ruin your life, frankly, um, and make just a mess for years and years because of things that come out of it. Under this, I would put uh, just general wildness, rebellion. Um, don't listen to your parents. That would fall under this. We're in the teen and maybe 20-year-old type range. Um, it, it makes me think of Jeremiah 2.13. Jeremiah says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. In, in all this category of stumbling block, people are seeking fulfillment in something the world offers. And there may be temporary fulfillment, a high of some sort, a great feeling that lasts a half hour. But then there's a crash that comes after that. That good feeling's gone. You know? and, and Jeremiah is, well, it's really God is speaking here through Jeremiah, and he's talking about this. They've turned away from the fountain of living waters. This is God who has made your soul to crave him. You need him. He's your fountain. He's your fulfillment. You turn away from him and go dig your own cisterns that don't hold water. You might have a little water in there and it drains away. It gets polluted. It's foul. That's what the fulfillment sources of the world are like. So these are ones that we know about. I want to then get to a, a second set that are more likely to impact children. Remember, this is about children. These also apply to all of us as adults, but you can have the visible Christian leader who falls into scandal. I won't dwell on that. Bob mentioned a few examples earlier. Or was that in Sunday school? Sunday school. He mentioned famous cases like Jimmy Swaggart and Jim Baker. Uh, this could be sexual immorality. It could be theft, embezzlement. It could be hypocrisy. Uh, the hypocritical parent. So in uh, another Barna Group study that came out in 2017 studying millennials, they, um, they said that the number one reason that millennials fall away from the church after they grow up and leave their family, these are church-going millennials, is the church is fake. That's the number one reason. And we probably all know of cases... Uh, where a parent lives a hypocritical life. It may be taking all the kids to church and the family and making it look like everything's well. But the kids know that dad never reads the Bible at home, never prays, never talks with the family about Bible stuff. And to them, it looks like it's just a show on Sunday. Don't be that kind of parent. They could get a lot of examples here. Uh, mom and dad act like everything's fine between them at church, but at home the kids know what the fighting's like. You know, so kids see that, and a lot of them grow up and say, "Well, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want that." Don't be that kind. But that's a real stumbling block for children. If some of this is striking home, you need to get alone with the Lord 
and work on this because you don't want this can be like the sprinkler if you've right now got kids that are under 10 you know and you let another decade go by with that sprinkler whirring around and chipping away at your asphalt that's bad that's bad um, the relative who says there's no God or cast doubt on the Bible. We have a child in Good News Club in third grade who told me in late January, my brother says that the Bible's not real. And I said, how old's your brother? His brother was a teenager. The child was third grade. I said that already. Um, and so I told him, well, I, I think your brother says that because he hasn't met Jesus. No, he actually said Jesus wasn't real. That's what he said. Jesus wasn't real, and you shouldn't believe the Bible. And I told him, he's telling you that because he doesn't know Jesus. If he knew Jesus like I know Jesus, there's no way he could think that. So don't just go by what he says. You have friends here in third grade that your brother doesn't know. You know, you might tell him about them. They're not any more real to him than Jesus is. But you know they're real because you know them. Um, and so I don't know where that kid is at this point, but this is a real danger. Don't be that relative. Don't joke. Don't even jokingly. Uh, and then last, the proud Christian with the stronger faith. So this is one that's in Scripture. First um, Corinthians eight thirteen. If food makes my brother stumble, it's the same word. Scandalon. If, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Uh, and by the way, we can hear that stuff about Christian liberty and tend to think, well, he needs to learn stuff. And, you know, it's so he doesn't stumble. Well, if you back up two verses, you see how serious Paul is about this. He says in verse 11, And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish? For whom Christ died. This word perish, by the way, here and in our passage in verse 14. It is not the will of your fathers in heaven that one of these little ones should perish is uh, uh, Apollia, which is related to Apollyon. Um, Bob mentioned that one or two Sundays ago about Apollyon in Greek meaning the destroyer. It literally means to destroy. So, Don't let your knowledge cause your weaker brother to be destroyed. So, let's move to good stuff. How to avoid being a stumbling block for for children. I draw two of these from the passage we're in, and I draw the one that's going to be in the middle as an opposite of of some of the things we were talking about. Number one is help them stay on their feet. Verse 6 says... Verse 6 says, don't cause them to stumble, or rather... Whoever causes one of these to stumble, it would be better for him to have a millstone tied around his his neck. Instead of causing them to stumble, let's go on the offensive of help them stay on their feet. Um, the guy that comes to mind is Barnabas. I think I yeah I have a verse here, Acts eleven twenty three. So Christians had been persecuted in Jerusalem. They had fanned out around the known world at that time. Some had gone to Antioch and had led people to Christ, including Gentiles. And so they sent Barnabas up there to check it out, what's going up on in Antioch. He gets there, and the Scripture says, when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. Uh, This latter phrase in the New American Standard, I really like it. It says, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Resolute is the same as having strong purpose, but resolute, I just 
like that word, resolute, with resolute heart. And here's the key thing, remain true to the Lord. So you think of these little children. Jesus has them gathered around him. He's using them as an object lesson with, uh, with his disciples. And he says, don't cause them to stumble. The opposite would be encouraging them. Remain true to the Lord. Keep growing up in your knowledge of Christ. Um, Matthew 18, 6. Well, I already covered that. Okay. So, second one. Be the real deal in your walk with God. Again, that number one reason in 2017 from that study, that millennials turn away from the church after they've grown up in it, is they think it's fake. Well, the hypocritical parent would contribute to that. Hypocrisy in our church would contribute to that. Um, a church seeming to just have no power. Doesn't have to do with hypocrisy, but just the life. Jesus says, said, if you if you love, if you love one another as I have loved you, all men will know that you're my disciples. If we claim to be a followers of his, but there's no love for one another. That'd be fake, right? So we don't want to be fake people individually, and we don't want to be a fake church. This is how we go. These are the ways we go on the offense, so we're not causing anybody to stumble. We're prodding people up, shoring them up in their faith. Okay? So this is one to get excited about. If you're finding any conviction here, God wants you to turn that around and get excited about meaning business with Him and your relationship with Him. Don't be a fake church attender. And the last one is don't despise children. Verse 10. This word despise, I looked up in the Greek, it means despise. Um, To think lightly of, to disregard... um, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. I I have to admit that apart from my child and children of close friends as they were growing up, I'm not really wired as a kid's person. And part of that, when I came to this church, I was not very interested in getting involved in ministry with children, and it partly had to do with an Awana program I was in in another church where it was not done well, and I just had a bad taste from that. But when I started coming to this church, I found out that the church had a need on Monday afternoons in Good News Club. And I can't at all say that I had any desire to go work with kids at Good News Club and miss work on Monday afternoons. But Gail and I had been praying for several months before we came to this church. God, we're in a season of life where we're available. What can we do to serve you? And so we'd been praying that. And here we heard Sunday after Sunday, Marsha's not in here, but it was Bob or Marsha for like two months We're losing some workers in January. We're going to need some help. (laughs) And so we said, okay, we're available. We'll go help. And my favorite time in Good News Club, literally, the first few months of Good News Club, was waving goodbye (laughs) as they leave. But God has worked in my heart, and I, I believe this is true for Gail, too, 
where even though the children still are not, that's not how I'm wired. It's not my passion. It's not my gifting. Okay? But he's changed our heart. We, we went with a good portion of our heart. We're available. We'll help. But he's expanded that where we love those kids. And he's worked in us in that. I think, I, you know, this is hard to say. I don't know that I was despising children when I first got here, but I wasn't thinking of the opportunity to shore them up. Go back to the first part. Help them stay on their feet. Help them know about Christ so they can even believe in Him to begin with. Um, anyway, I leave that for you for whatever. Hopefully something here resonates with you. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to wrap, I'm not going to finish this. I'm going to wrap up, uh, at verse 14. So Jesus gives a severe warning in eight and nine. I mentioned that brief, uh, briefly earlier. He says, if your, if your body part causes you to sin and you can fill in the blank, he gives several, he gives three examples. Um, then I take it literally true what he says. It's better for you to not have that body part, lop off that hand, than to enter the fiery hell. It's literally true. Jesus wants your best. But it really begs the question, what causes you to sin? And if we back up a few chapters to Matthew 15, Bob already covered this um, in a prior message. But Jesus says to his disciples, Are you, they come to him asking him to explain something he's just said to the Pharisees. And the context has to do with washing of hands and being clean in regard to meals. And he says, are you all still without understanding? Do you not understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. The heart is the real issue. Okay, well, so that means I need to rip my heart out. Well, no, he doesn't mean literally the organ that's pumping the blood. The word heart means the essence of who you are. When you, If any of you have been blessed to fall in love and you told the object of your love, I love you with all my heart, you probably didn't mean this organ pumping blood. You meant with all of my being. All of who I am, all of my essence, I love you. That's what you mean. It's out of that being, that soul, that all that of, what, of who you are, that's your essence. That's where all the evil proceeds for, from. Um, I, before this verse, I think of also in Jeremiah 17, uh, God says the heart is deceitful, is totally wicked. Who can understand it? The answer, of course, is only God. Solomon in Proverbs 4 gives us this. Keep your heart with all diligence. That means guard, watch over, protect your heart. Keep it. Think, have any of you played the game Castle Keep? The keeps at the center of the castle? I see blank looks. Y'all don't know that game. So, anyway, um, medieval times, a castle. The keep is the secure place inside the castle. If they breach the walls, you retreat into the keep. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. It's a severe warning here, 
but it's Jesus doesn't mean go cut off your hand and your foot and you know and your pluck out your eye. What's really causing you to sin? That's what you need to address, and it's always going to be the heart. So pursue pursue a clean heart. Psalm fifty one ten is a reference. Um, all right. So the lost sheep illustration. The point here is to seek and find them. So my claim in this context, we've been talking about children, talking about stumbling blocks. What happens to those who stumble? Well, they're the lost sheep. Something has rocked their boat. It could be in the vein of do what feels good. They think that grass is greener and they've just gone off doing their own thing. But it could be any of those other things where the wheels got knocked off the cart and their belief in Christ is really waffling and they stray. Well, Jesus' answer starting in verse 11, is the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And the illustration is meant clearly that we should go seek and find them. That's what the Good Shepherd's going to do. And, it, and you can take this, that's what Jesus does. He tells other, parable, he, other parables and teaching, particularly over in John, about him as the Good Shepherd and going to seek the lost sheep. But in this context... This is what logically a farmer rancher guy would do who has a herd of sheep, a shepherd. That's the word for it, shepherd. That's what a shepherd would do if he has a herd of sheep and loses one, right? So if we are aware of a child who stumbles, and we can generalize to adults too, but a child who stumbles, seek them out. Try to find them and draw them back. And I leave you with verse 14. Do I have it here? Well, that's the first Timothy verse I referred to earlier. All right, we're going to go back. We'll end with this. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Yeah, there. Oh, yeah, I got it. Okay. So, yeah, so this is the cross-reference, the first Timothy verse I mentioned earlier. Um, we serve a God who cares greatly for us. And Jesus is teaching here because he doesn't want any of us to stumble and fall and have and abandon our faith. And he's not, by the way, in 1 through 14. In 15 through 20, he's going to start to talk about the church. We'll get to that next week. But in 1 through 14, he's talking individually to the person who would stumble. Each one of us, he doesn't want us to stumble. He doesn't want us to sin. We should not fall into the temptation of steal the cookie and disobey mom. Okay? There's not such a thing as a little sin. But the bigger teaching here is the things that would push you away from faith, cause serious doubting, rocking of your boat. And Jesus doesn't want us to fall into that. The Father doesn't want anyone to perish. So, I'm going to, you get a preview of what's coming next week. I'm going to just buzz through lots of stuff here and get to questions. Oh, here we go. Are you a stumbling block to anyone? It's easy to say no. But I think given the severity of what Jesus has said, this is worth pausing and thinking about. Do I appear to relatives 
to be the real deal in following Christ. I bet some of you have never thought about how if you were just going through the motions, someone else might think Christianity's fake. And they're looking at you. Don't be that person. Pursue the Lord with a whole heart and tell others, encourage others to pursue the Lord with a whole heart. Um, What are you doing to encourage someone in his or her faith? This is a great question to think about because we have people in our lives who claim to be Christians. But I have found that outside of the confines of a church meeting of some sort, we're often very reticent to talk about items of faith. But there are all kinds of ways that you can be genuine in normal life around people and can encourage them in their faith. So this is worth thinking about and praying about this week. God, what's the, how can I encourage someone in their faith? If you haven't picked up the gist, I'm trying to encourage you to proactively go in the opposite direction of what would be a stumbling block. Because it is the will of the Father that none of these little ones should perish. So the other questions are for next week, I think. Uh, uh, Is there a need to change the way you think? Let me close this in prayer, or close the message in prayer, and then we'll sing a song and be done. Father, thank you for how much you care for us. You don't want the little ones to perish. You don't want the big ones to perish. You don't want any of us to perish. You want all of us to come to salvation. You say in Ezekiel that you, you have no pleasure in the death of anyone. Um, Father, help us to hate what you hate and to love what you love. Help us to love other people because you love them. Help us to want to exhort others to remain true to you because that matters to you. And Lord, help each of us to think about how we, we might know someone who's struggling, who's stumbled already. And maybe there's a way that you can use us to reach out to them, to love them, to encourage them, to help them find their way back to you. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Please work in our hearts through this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.